to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 122, recorded on September 11th of 2020. Uh, this is the Photo Geekery podcast. I am your host, Don Kamarechka, and uh, I go through the news stories of the week throughout the week, and I set aside the best ones to talk about on this podcast uh, with a co-host, a co-pilot, if you will. And this week is a fellow photo geek and technology nerd, and I mean that as a compliment, uh, <laughs> Jeff Harmon. Uh, Jeff, uh, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, happy to come on, Don. Uh, and we were just uh, previously, right before recording, I was showing Jeff a, a photo project that I'm working on about taking off the, the back uh, covers of computer processors and things and taking some fancy photos of them. Might work some of that into my uh, upcoming book. But um, there's so much to explore. You know, I, I, I had these chips in a drawer from high school when my school was throwing stuff away and I just decided to pull all the chips out of things before it went into the scrap waste bin. And now... Many, many years later, I'm finding some uses for that, and only because we're in a pandemic and I'm starving <laughs> for subjects, and I'm not going to go to the florist and go and grab some flowers right now, because that's not an essential outing for me at this juncture. Um, how are you holding up through all this? Doing well. Doing, you know, you say exploring. I, I think I need three lifetimes right now to to kind of explore what I want to explore and it's not obviously not going to happen but <laughs> there's so much so much I'd love to learn more about like I know just enough to know oh man I could spend a lifetime on this and it would be so much fun to go do that and uh and it just explore the corners and uh, it would be so much fun yeah, you know, and I'm trying to wrap up the final images for the uh, the limited edition version of my book. And I'm just thinking, I mean, I've got much of it, but I just want to put something new in there. Uh -huh. Maybe it'll be this processor photo. I don't know. Um, but uh, maybe it'll be, I've got um, a sample of a, a specimen of ruby. And ruby tends to fluoresce red, mm. uh, very, very deep into the red spectrum. So far so that it actually fluoresces into the infrared. And so I've got this idea floating around in my head to um, photograph it in the visible spectrum of fluorescence. And then um, I've got a camera, uh, Lumix S1 modified for uh, full spectrum photography. So I could put a filter on that lets just the visible light through. Um, but then I could put on a different filter that uh, only lets various levels of infrared light through. Right. And I can then combine the visible light with maybe like a 720 nanometer infrared and then maybe a 900 or a 1000 millimeter infrared if there's still any transmission at that point as color channels in Photoshop right, right. just to uh, make a new reality out of it. Right. Uh, and it, I, honestly, it would only take me about a half an hour to do the setup and test and everything. Uh, and I've just been like late at night. Or in the middle of the night, my daughter wakes me up with a nightmare and I try to fall back asleep. And my mind just does not shut off. It's just coming up with these ideas. And just like you, there's never enough time right. uh, to explore them all. You'd need to have multiple lifetimes. Oh, yeah, for sure. It would be really cool to, to see that that image and how what the effect was, the end result. Oh, it might be a complete failure. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I, I don't expect it to be spectacular, but it's just one of those what if moments that I, I get to thinking about and think, even if the image doesn't succeed, it's still a story worth telling. Um, because, you know, others might look at that and say, hey, I, I think I found a solution to whatever the problem is that you encountered or be inspired to approach it from a different perspective. Or at the very least, look different. <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. like that, that's a, there's a lot to that. Just creating images that are different uh, are really compelling. If, even if it doesn't turn out like you'd hoped when it looks different, that's that ends up being pretty compelling. Yeah. Yeah. And I was I was thinking of you uh, when I thought of our first story uh, for this episode, because I know that you've been doing some astrophotography recently. I've I seen have. you posting on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, very cool stuff, by the way. And I want to maybe pick your brain on that a little bit. Um, but what if you had an unlimited budget? And wh when I mean unlimited, I mean like <laughs> um, large, uh, you know, first world uh, state um you know, talking about like if you're a country that has billions upon billions of dollars to throw at something uh, and you are given the, the problem of, okay, how do we make better pictures of space? What would you do, Jeff? Well, I would do what the story says here. I'm, I'm sure that's where it would go. I, obviously, that's what's kind of happened. We have uh, multiple countries kind of getting together and chipping in on this whole project. 
so that we can do a better job of photographing deep space in particular and, and observe things that have been t- difficult for us to observe because we didn't have enough uh, capability to record the night sky. We've talked about this project before in different elements of it. We talked about the uh, the optics involved in this, which is like the biggest lens ever created. Uh, and now we have the biggest sensor ever created to go with. And of course, one has to go with the other. Why right, else right. would you make the biggest optics if not to also make the biggest sensor to go behind it? Um, reported by DP Review, researchers capture... Uh, Two, uh, sorry, 3,200 megapixels. Let's call this 3.2 gigapixels now. Right, we can use right. the term gigapixels. Um, an image using a future telescope camera. And you got to test this thing on something. Well, they tested it on broccoli. <laughs> right, and, I saw that. Uh, you know, the, the spirally fractal one, I forget what they call that, you know, that, that has those wonderful little uh, pyramid-type shapes, those cones um, uh, that remind me of Fibonacci spirals. But we have now an image of broccoli <laughs> taken with the world's most... Uh, I, I, confirm it to be the most expensive sensor but i believe it is the highest resolution and the largest um uh, going into this new camera so if we break it down it's not really a single sensor so you've got uh i think it's 189 different individual image sensors that are going into this beast of a thing. And in the resulting images, you can kind of see the lines between them. Um, maybe you can AI that away, or for the sciencey people, you'd probably leave that in place because you want to make it technically accurate. Um, but it's it reminds me of when you would have those big paneled TVs that would have a very small bezel in between them uh, that would break apart the image just slightly, not enough to be terribly distracting, but yeah, you, you see it. Um, so Jeff, I know you did a bit of number crunching on this in terms of uh, the the file sizes and and what people might be facing when it comes to this. But uh, the the number crunching that I did was um, 189 and 3,200 megapixels. You know, smush those numbers together and you get about like 16.93 megapixels per individual sensor. That's actually not a whole lot based on the size of these things. Um, And you could imagine that the next iteration of a sensor like this could double or triple the resolution that we're currently seeing. Yeah, I was a little surprised because they they didn't say much about where these sensors came from. So we don't know. Are they are they Sony manufactured? Are they, I don't know. I, they didn't go into that. Detail. And they didn't call them normal sensor. They called them like science sensors. <laughs> they were talking about these things. Uh, didn't give us much information on what they are. But I think you're right. It's about, it's about you know almost 17 megapixels per sensor. I was really surprised to see that they did leave the gaps between. I thought like with with how much precision they were uh, they were assembling this array of sensors and they they said it took them 6 months to do it and they have to work really hard to make it so that the the sensors are all lying flat within 1/100th of a human hair or sorry 1/10th of a human hair about 5 microns is all they have room to deal with um so they they are all completely flat with with that kind of precision they couldn't just get the sensors to be mounted side by side either. I don't know. Maybe there's, there's physical well, limitations. I, I, I was thinking, well, why can't you just make a really flat surface and put all the sensors on that and assemble them on that surface? Right. I mean, wouldn't that, instead of trying to adjust them the other way around, it would make sense because you got to wire them all up from behind that they would all stay that way. I'm, I'm not sure what their challenges were, right? But nobody's yeah. faced we this know. before. And <laughs> right. so if nobody's faced this before, there's like, okay, well, I don't know what we're doing. Uh, and no, nobody else does either. So let's just try stuff and see what fails. Um, we will meet with a lot of failure before we find what succeeds. Yeah. And they started this project a while back, like you said. So there's, you know, things certainly change. Technology is moving so fast. You kind of have to say, well, this is good enough. We got to get moving. We can't wait until we have everything perfect because we'll never get started. So you, you got to get moving on, on this kind of a thing and, and go and make it. So, and it was interesting to watch how they were like building the assembly of these things. They had like robotic arms because they had to get that precision five microns. They they're not putting these together by hand. They kind of attach it to robot arms and then they use the robot arms to to uh, to put these things in place and and move them around. So it, that that's kind of interesting. So the numbers I ran. 
yeah, just assuming a three by two aspect ratio, which no idea. They didn't say what kind of a, an aspect ratio this thing's got. It would be equivalent to about 69,000 pixels on one edge and 46,000 pixels on the other for a it single is, image. It is circular in a sense. Right, you know, right, You can right. see the, the, the overall shape, but still it doesn't matter X versus yeah, Y no. in terms of the recorded data. It should come out to the same numbers. Yep. Yeah, so that's it's just interesting because we are all used to seeing kind of, you know, the pixel dimensions of our images and how much bigger <laughs> this image is. That's pretty impressive to see about it. Is. And then I, then it made me wonder like, well, what does it take to store these images? Um, their plan that they said, their plan is to take images, panoramic images of the Southern night sky every night for 10 years. And so that's more than one image panoramic and they don't say how many, although it did say that the, the field of view is seven full moons across. That's about how much space it could be. And I didn't go try to figure out what that would mean for the, the Southern night sky, but it's going to be a lot. So if it was just a single image, I was, I was surprised it would only be something like 300 megabytes for a JPEG, or if they were raw, maybe close to about five gigabytes per image. So not nearly as big as I was imagining in my head when I first saw the numbers. And then if you took just one image every night for 10 years, it's only about, about 18 terabytes that that would end up being. So again, not a crazy amount of storage as I thought might be as, as I was getting into it. And then if you, if you expand it on like 100 images, just because the math is easy, now you get up to about two, two uh, petabytes of storage that you'd have to have uh, to, to keep all these things over that 10-year period. And that gets well, they, they did the a lot space. with the, uh, the, the black hole image that we saw. Recording not images per se, but uh, radio data and uh, and throwing that in like mountains of hard drives because that's what it required to, to store it all. Um, and I think that the storage costs on this are going to be the lowest cost <laughs> right. on, because they, they call them, uh, what was the word that they use? Rafts. All these different sensors, they call them rafts because they're kind of all floating together. Um, and uh, one of them, and remember, there's 189 of them here. One of them costs $3 million. $3 million, yeah. Uh, $3 million for a 16 megabyte, uh, megapixel sensor. That that's a lot. Now the, these are CCDs, uh, charge, uh, charge couple devices, not CMOS, which is what we normally find in our modern day cameras. However, um, in astrophotography, CCDs are still commonly used, uh, partly because they're, uh, their impressive performance when they are very, very cold. Um, and so you put a chilling device on this and then you get very, very good results. Uh, they are also, at least when you're using them in, um, in actual space, like on satellites and things like that, uh, the technology is a little bit more robust um, in terms of its interactions with cosmic radiation. I'm not sure if that would be the same down here on Earth, but these are typically placed in uh, locations where the atmosphere is very thin and they're very high up in it, where cosmic radiation might become more of a problem, especially when you're trying to build a long-term device. A CCD makes a little bit more sense. Right. And then sticking it in, uh, they, they picked a spot in Chile because of how high up it can uh, they, get. And, they did. Uh, yeah. The Veracy Rubin Observatory in Chile. Yep. Um, so, and it says, uh, reading from the article, once it has been installed, it will capture panoramic images of the southern sky uh, every few nights for 10 years. Yeah. So this is a decades um, long project. At least that's what they're currently billing it at. Um, but as we know from some of the rovers we've sent to Mars that had like, what, a 35 day mission and they ran like for years. years. Yeah. <laughs> um, we don't know how long this will actually be, but so long as it works for a decade, it will fulfill its mission. And, uh, that is our weird and wonderful camera gear for the day. Yeah. Very cool. I can't wait to yeah. see images. <laughs> uh, yeah. It, I, I, I really hope that the stuff that they send out public facing, they fill in the gaps. Right. Um, and I don't mind that that might not be true science. I'm right. just looking at it as a pretty picture. Uh, make sure all the sciencey stuff is is buttoned down. You know, don't fake anything in the science, but just show me the pretty. Yeah. Um, and I'd be distracted by all those grid lines. Yes. <laughs> okay. Now, this is kind of the meat and potatoes story of, uh, of the episode, and I'm sure you'll agree, Jeff. Um, it comes in two parts, possibly three. You sent me a link earlier. I didn't get a chance to look at it, but I want you to opine on that as well. Mm -hmm. um, so part number one uh, from DP Review, Lens Rentals. So it's really from Lens Rentals. Um, they tear down the EOS R5. We, we did a teardown uh, story from them last week, but they're just so good. 
Oh. I had to do another one because this really matters. So they tear down the EOS R5 and finds interesting ceiling and thermal flow. And the related story is uh, Lens Rentals did a proper heat emission test on the EOS R5. So we'll get to that one after we go through the teardown. And I encourage everybody to go to, uh, you know, check out the show notes at photogeekweekly.com and uh, find this article and read through it because there's humor in there. There's <laughs> joy that these people just find so much enjoyment and excitement taking our, our cameras apart in ways that we would have nightmares about with 200 pieces on our desk with no ability to put it back together properly. And they somehow know how to do it like the back of their hand. So uh, what did you think of this article, Jeff? I, I am amazed at Roger Sakala. Every time I see anything he does, it's pure gold. I, I love it. He, when he was on your show just a little bit ago, uh, that episode, it, it's not the same chemistry that you and Steve have. That's that's like irreplaceable. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, but wow, was he good on your show. Every time I see anything from Roger, I'm interested. He's just super, super great at uh, producing content that, that I love getting into. Fits my geeky, nerdy heart. I, I really love it. Um, I love the way he goes about trying to test things too. Because it, it feels to me like the media or the the coverage of it often has kind of an axe to grind um, with some of these companies. Like they they're after this story of like this this company is doing us wrong. <laughs> they're trying to do something that's going to hurt us as consumers or even as professionals that use their equipment, and and we want to show how bad these companies are. And his his teardowns are completely not that. They're just well-produced, fully professional, unbiased. Here's yeah, what he it looks the like. Politics from it. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. the tribalism and all that. Right. And, you know, uh, and so in, in the teardown of this, they found pretty good weather sealing. Uh, in fact, oh, in yeah. some areas better than they would have expected uh, under previous cameras. Um, and I find it so funny that uh, Roger in this uh, uh, article rundown, he says, okay, enough with weather sealing. You know weather sealing is outside my circle of trust, but I might put this within the rhomboid of reduced suspicion. <laughs> and the, just the, the word play that this man brings to the table here, you got to read it. You got to check it out. What, what stood out for you in the teardown? Well, I, he was paying particular attention to the heat sinks. I think that was kind of one of the goals in this teardown was like, how are they from a design perspective and, and how the materials that are in this camera how are they trying to deal with the heat? They knew, I mean, everyone knew when, when, as soon as there was the rumors of potential 8k video uh, coming out of these cameras, everyone thought, what are they going to do with the heat? That is just going to be a lot of heat to be dealing with. And are they going to actually be able to do it? Or is this thing going to be like overheating in minutes? And, and so I, I think he was just super interested in that. And then he was sidetracked, <laughs> like you'd said along the way about how good the weather ceiling looked. Like, I think the comments were something along the lines of, this is the best weather ceiling he's ever seen in a camera that's in some places when he was disassembling it, there was actual suction uh, with the, the pieces that he was trying to pull apart that is there for the weather ceiling aspects. And he was super impressed and not expecting to see that as he was taking apart this camera body. Right. And, and it's interesting that um, for me, uh, and this is a bad thing and, and there's some other good things, but the bad thing is all the ports uh, are uh, soldered onto the right. main uh, the, the main PCB, the main motherboard, if you will, of the camera that everything connects to that's got the sensor on it. And yeah, you can pull all that apart. Uh, the sensor is its own separate component, but it's all connected to that main PCB, which has the main processor and everything else. So if you break that tiny little HDMI port, oh, gosh. Um, you've got to replace the main board inside this system. Um, and you've got uh, the memory card slots. They're also all stuck right on in there. And people were uh, uh, trying to figure out how to uh, override the, uh, the heat detection, whether it be a counter or something else. There's a little switch uh, that controls uh, detecting whether the battery door is open or closed. It's very fragile. It's very tiny. It's easy to break. It's also soldered on that main board. So if you break that switch... By jamming a screw in there, and we know people have been doing <laughs> yes, this, they have. Uh, then you could potentially completely brick your camera because now it won't detect that the battery door is ever closed. Um, and yeah, yeah, it, it can be fixed, but nobody's going to solder a new switch onto that board. You'd need a new PCB. 
and that is disappointing. It's and disappointing that, and maybe the the space just isn't there. There is a lot of electronics packed into this camera. There's not a ton of room. In fact, that's one of the concerns of, or one of the issues with the heat. There's not there's not air for that heat to dissipate to. So it, it's a really tough thing. But mini HDMI having that there is notorious for being just even if you're careful having it break. And so that 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 is concerning. That is a problem. Yeah, well, it, it, they had a daughter board in here too that uh, Roger was taking a look at, and it, it basically looked like uh, looks like it's a DC to DC converter. Right. So you take DC power from the battery at one voltage, you split it out to other voltages for other components within the system, and that inherently will generate some heat. You're going to lose about ten to twenty percent of efficiency uh, when you're converting from one voltage to another. Um, but that uh, I, I'm mentioning that now because that might be relevant in in a future uh, discussion when we get to the, the second half of the story because that's a daughter board with all of these integrated circuits that are kind of somewhat temperature sensitive in terms of their efficiencies. Um, but during the breakdown, there was uh, some thermal plating, some aluminum plates that kind of spread across in order to dissipate the heat a little bit, uh, and some uh, heat spreading, um, it's, it's not a tape, but it's kind of like a uh, a pad, a sticky pad, right. and there's two of those within the, the camera as well in order to, again, suck heat away from the RAM and the processor and just to try to spread it out amongst the camera. Um, they found some interesting design fundamentals that I don't think Canon had implemented before, um, but it seemed like they said that it is much more crammed inside than the original EOS R, which had air gaps in various places. There was room inside that camera to do more. Well, they filled it now <laughs> right. pretty well completely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No empty yeah. space. That, and that, that means heat just doesn't have anywhere to go. So let, let's go to the, the heat uh, part of this because they also did a proper heat uh, a heat test and they had all the, the board diagrams and stuff so they could overlay that to see exactly where the heat was coming from. And surprise, surprise, the RAM and the processor right. uh, is, is the, the main culprit of where the heat is coming from. But they were also checking around the camera, um, all the various angles to see what was hottest, what was coolest. Um, they found that when you lift lifted open the port cover, you know, where the HDMI port and, uh, and uh, USB port are, um, that you would have a much hotter response there. Uh, on the other side of the camera, the memory card, uh, and taking the memory card out was very hot too. So that kind of gave you a glimpse to the internals, but the outer shell of this camera just wasn't conducting that heat very well. Um, in fact, I dare say it was an insulator. <laughs> right. And um, because if if other things are radiating, at some point in one of the images, you can see the screws on the bottom of the camera are hotter than the bottom of the camera itself, right. which means that those screws being metal are radiating more heat than, I don't know if it's plastic, it kind of looks like it's a plastic body, uh, some sort of um, uh, uh, plastic-like material and not a metal. Uh, I know that they've used magnesium for the longest time, uh, and metals are usually better conductors of heat. But um, wh wh what do you think about this, uh, Jeff, I know you've been considering the purchase of a new Canon camera, um, yet you are somewhat brand agnostic and you see how Canon's handling this with the EOS R5. And we know that there's uh, some firmware updates for the R5 and the R6 now, and, and things are improving for both of those cameras. Um, do you see this as something that Canon can overcome or is this just what it is? Well, so I, this is why I liked Roger's breakdown of this because he does kind of take the politics. He doesn't have an extra grand of Canon. He's just trying to be like, figure out what is going on in here. And the, all of these things that you just mentioned, I think contribute to the fact that it's just, it's just a reality that these things produce a lot of heat when you try to operate them with recording video at 8k, um, that takes a lot of data transfer. So those cards get heated up too, as you're, you're really pounding them with, with data rates, everything just gets hot and there's nowhere for it to go. I'd be surprised if someone else, like another manufacturer can solve this problem either. It's probably going to be a common problem among all it's, it's sort of like we have competing objectives here. There's all this weather ceiling that they were so glad to find and, and where it looks so good. Well, that also contributes to helping make sure that heat has nowhere to go. It's keeping it inside the camera because it's got to try to keep water outside of the camera. 
and we don't want to give that up either. So we we want it all and you know, physical limitations and just the the laws of thermodynamics here. I think it's a problem and and it won't matter if it's Nikon or Sony or anyone else. They're going to be facing a similar challenge when they're trying to do this with camera bodies that are so small. There's just no place for this heat to go. And that's why that's what I liked about his his breakdown, because I, I didn't feel like he had an axe to grind against. It's just this is the reality. Well, it is. And, uh, you know, going by the numbers, they could measure the uh, the card slot measuring at fifty seven point one degrees Celsius. Um the card a few degrees less than that once you've taken it out, but it takes a few minutes or a, f- a few seconds rather for you to lay it down and then measure it. Um, the internal EXIF data, um, because a lot of cameras will have an internal temperature sensor and will right. record um, that uh, that temperature to a usually a maker note section of the EXIF data. It's uh, proprietary to the camera manufacturers, but with tools like EXIF tool, you can pull that out. Mm-hmm. Uh, then uh, we saw uh, that the highest measure of internal temperature, while still functional, you know, recorded a, an image or a video uh, of 63 degrees Celsius. And that's important because the, um, the chips inside become, and I'll, I'll read from the article here saying that, uh, and it, this is Roger's words, uh, I'm not a chip guy, but according <laughs> to their FAQ, the Toshiba voltage converting chips have a suggested maximum operating temperature of 60 degrees Celsius before they dramatically lose efficiency. Uh, and less efficiency means generating more heat. Right. So once you pass that point, then it takes like it, it's just it's a runaway, uh, a runaway train, if right. I could uh, not let my words run away from me. Um, so if that's the case, th- does that degrade those integrated circuits? Is there a reason why those circuits are on a daughter board? Uh, that was so curious to me. Like, why is that a separate board? Because maybe to to take heat away from the main uh, PCB uh, could be part of it. Maybe it's because it could be replaced at some point because uh, it might, they might think that, Hey, this particular component inside the camera might wear out quicker than other pieces um, based on it being a big source of heat. I don't know. Um, but it was really interesting to see that being a, a separate board. And uh, my opinions are just pure conjecture, <laughs> right. um, but that that's hot. And the hotter it is, uh, the less effective uh, an image sensor is going to be in terms of quality. Uh, and so there's that angle as well. There's a lot of stuff that says that basically, uh, he, uh, and I'll paraphrase uh, right here, but because I don't have it right in front of me, but a firmware hack won't make the camera cooler. It'll just make it work hotter. And, and I think that's what we saw with the, uh, the initial update that, uh, that gave longer runtimes. All they're doing now is just letting it get hotter, hoping that it stays within spec and making people a little bit happier in the process. Exactly right. Exactly. I, I loved that last statement he had there too about that working hotter and and how comfortable they are. You know, as they got the the camera out the door initially, they had a, the firmware engineers. I'm sure they were instructed like, well, we don't want to take it too close to the line. We might have if something go wrong and then people burn their camera or it bursts into flames in their hands would be really bad. So let's play conservative and, and find a, a way to do that. And then as they got more time and especially the, the public perception on this, they thought, okay, let's see if we can get it a little closer to that line uh, where we're still comfortable um, and it, even if you did do something like try to redesign the body and, and maybe throw out the weather ceiling and let's see what we can do to, to try to dissipate that heat. Now it could potentially be a, a real danger to the person operating the camera. Cause if you have some sort of, I don't know, metal plate on the outside where the heat gets sent to, so it can dissipate faster, that thing could get so hot. It could burn you and that could be a problem. So it, it just well, doesn't seem like there's a, an easy way to deal with this. Uh, let's look back to what we know. Uh, the Canon 1DX uh, was able to record, uh, you know, very high quality video. I can't remember if it was 4K. I think it was just 1080p. Um, but the uh, EOS 1DC did 4K and it used the full sensor. But it was effectively on the outside. It looked like the exact same camera body, the same sensor. They refused to reveal the firmware for the 1DC to the public. If you wanted to update your firmware, you would have to send it back to the Canon uh, repair people to update the firmware on it because 
you could put that firmware on a 1DX. That that was the suspicion all over. Um, but if you did, you would probably break your camera because while it is technically capable of running that firmware and offering those features, it would overheat because it was not internally thermally designed to handle that level of heat. Because when they redesigned for the uh, the 1DC, they learned how to dissipate heat across that body in a much better, more robust way to offer those higher end video features. And you paid a, a very significant premium for it. They, they learned that back then. That was generations of flagships ago. And so why are we still here when they (laughs) had knowledge from previous iterations of this where they could have seen this coming and they have seen it coming and they they had possible solutions to it. Um, But I also want to to bring this back to another point. If this camera was slightly bigger, people would probably complain about that. Oh, yeah, for sure. Right. Um, and, And I could imagine a good solution here is build the top plate out of something a little bit more thermally conductive. Uh, and run heat pipes sure. through the top plate. Because if there's any space in this camera, it was closer to that top plate. So if you could give a tiny bit of extra space up there to run some heat pipes and have a bit of better heat dissipation, you might be able to accomplish something. But as Roger suggested, you've got so many different people and so many different departments all working on this project together. There's no one person that's cohesively coalescing it right and you've got different department heads meeting with different people and you've got the marketing team and you've got the engineering teams and you've got the corporate head people and everybody (laughs) they're not thinking the same they're not not the same people uh so in order to to make this work i think that they could have done more i i think that they had a precedent in the past the 1dx to 1dc conversion that told them what heat dissipation was all about and what they needed to do and how to do it better and they didn't do that And I don't know if the team that worked on that had anything to do with this camera. could be entirely different people and a different knowledge set, but they should have tapped into at least that knowledge. Yeah. And maybe we will see another camera another day where they did do something like that. And we have, they explain like, well, you clearly wanted a camera in this form factor that can do 8K for longer periods of time. Now we've built it. Here were the other compromises we had to make to make that happen and and see how it goes Uh, we'll see we'll see what happens i did want to talk about what uh and i don't know this website before seeing this i just saw it on twitter but uh cine d is a website that uh that had uh someone from canon on there and um they they asked a question so cine d asked um if canon was trying to protect their professional eos camera line by restricting recording times and he said, uh, or, was that intentional or was that just technically to protect the camera? And, and Canon's response was interesting. He said, this is an accusation we've seen before, which belongs on the conspiracy theory pile. <laughs> it is simply not a sensible business idea as users are more likely to switch to competitor systems than buy a much more expensive camera to get a certain feature. So he's... No, but that that's also, that's been Canon's business model for a long time. It's true. And I, <laughs> yep. I, and I, I won't go down the intervalometer rabbit hole again. I know that Canon <laughs> has started putting those onto their cameras. They have. Um, but, but for the longest time, they made you buy an extra accessory or they made you, if you wanted to have specific features, upsell you to a higher class of camera body and it's not just canon no they I, I all have the to. industry at large has been doing this yeah. you know and, and a lot of these are just software limitations where I, I get it there's the product differentiation but also the cost of developing a complete comprehensive robust firmware and especially testing it and retesting it when you have to do firmware updates the more complex and the more features you have the more things need to be tested and the more costly it becomes for the manufacturer to support the product um and so there is a price differentiation there if I'm playing devil's advocate. Um, but you know, for, for some basic functionality to not include uh, a feature on a particular camera, but include it on a more expensive one where all it is is just a module in the software that is across the line on the higher end. Yeah, I, I might take issue with that. Oh, for sure. <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> um, but I, I, I want to go back to a comment from somebody else un- unrelated to this at all, but... Um, you know, I, as I was mentioning, I was playing around with computer processors and and I, I found the contact information for one, um, Bob Caldwell. Do you know who Bob Caldwell is? Nope. Otherwise known, known as, um, I've got his book here. Um, 
making a mess on my floor. Uh, Robert P. Caldwell. Uh, he was the chief architect uh, or one of the lead architects on the P6 architecture, okay. which eventually became the Pentium Pro and is now at the core of all of our modern computers. He was also one of the lead architects on the Willamette core, which became the first of the Pentium 4 netburst architectures. So he's basically designed most of the computers that we've used if it's an x86 chip by Intel, uh, or at least he started that process. Mm hmm. So I asked him, uh, you know, now where things are in terms of, you know, we've had some issues with uh, Spectre and Meltdown where you've got these speculative execution, uh, you know, issues that have come up that honestly, if researchers at Google didn't figure it out, this is like a state actor level attack kind of thing. Um, and, and he said something really interesting in, in an email in, in a dialogue that I had with him. And he said, you know, do you think, uh, and I'm, I'm going to quote him here. I don't even know if he wants me to do this. He didn't say <laughs> to not. So, um, he said, uh, do I think it was somehow my responsibility to prevent them from being able to make design errors? No, I, I, I do not. Remember the majestic image of a Saturn V rocket carrying Apollo capsules to the moon. Amazing engineering, isn't it? Uh, well, now picture the same thing, but with lots of snipers shooting at the Saturn as it rises. If it crashed, would you blame the rocket engineers or the people shooting at it? Uh, and that I just, it was such a wonderful analogy because yes, you can design something that does its purpose perfectly within the spec that you've presented it to be and whether you're sniping at it with bullets as a rocket rises or your weapon of choice is vitriolic commentary on the internet which is more common <laughs> right uh, so i mean who do you blame at that point do you blame canon for it or do you blame all of the people that are just not impressed with what it's doing even though it's doing exactly what it said it was supposed to well and, and how many people are on this story just because they want to see canon put down as a company like they they are you know sony fanboys or fuji or whatever other camera manufacturer it is they didn't want these cameras to come out and be great 8k video cameras because now that makes their camera look you know their choice in their manufacturer is is no longer justified as much and so they they really wanted to see it fail and those are the people i think we hear a lot more from right now yeah it's just it's a challenge it's producing a ton of heat it doesn't deal with it well. Yep, that's right. <laughs> it doesn't. Yep. <laughs> uh, digest that uh, and move on. And so we, I guess we will because we've talked that story on so many episodes to death and I'm sorry if you're tired of it. I kind of am too. And I think we've come to the final conclusion with that discussion. Let's uh, go on to the next story, which is uh, via Petapixel. This AI can transform regular footage into slow motion with no artifacts. Um, their example here uh, uses stop motion animation using Lego figures. I think it's a perfect example to see how this uh, could be put to the test to translate 15 frames per second to 60 frames per second. And uh, it's called uh, Depth Aware Video Frame Interpolation or DANE. Um, and uh, according to the article on Petapixel, it is simply mind blowing. Uh, the tech can interpolate a 30 frames per second video all the way to 120 frames per second or even 480 frames per second with almost no visual artifacts. Now that statement seems full of it because <laughs> to say, oh, you can go from 30 to 120, but also 480. Well, no, that just, you don't say one and then like quadruple it. Uh, <laughs> like, no, it, it's, it, it has to have a limit somewhere. And so um, 15 to 60, I think that might be an acceptable pace for technology to maybe be able to figure out the details of. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I know you don't do a lot of video work, Jeff, but I'm sure you saw some of these examples. And uh, what do you think about this technology not only being fully capable as we see it, but probably still going to evolve and being entirely free? It's that it's the technology angle that I'm more interested in. Yeah, I, I don't do a ton of video. I'd like to get into it a little bit more, but um, I haven't got a lot of experience with video. It's still impressive, still super impressive to me. I, I know enough about it to know that going from 15 to 30 and not having artifacts is a pretty incredible thing for them to be able to do. And I think it's just more than anything, it encourages me 
that our AI is going to become so important for photography and videography. The, the both of them are going to benefit tremendously from what we're able to do with AI. We're seeing some vendors uh, of post-processing software for stills that have been incorporating that. Both Topaz and Skyloom have been doing a lot of work there. Uh, to me, they've been more impressive. Now, we'll see on Skyland, their, their AI stuff hasn't been released yet, so we'll see later this year how it comes out. But I've done some testing of the Topaz AI-based things. It's not perfect. There's still some cases where other techniques, I get better results, but it's pretty impressive and so easy to use. That's kind of what's amazing to me. If you're putting tools in the hands of consumers where you'll they'll be able to create images that are so much more compelling at a touch of a button and uh, and that that's kind of an interesting thing it means a lot of us as photographers have to be able to up our game we certainly need to know how to use these tools uh, but we need to to figure out how to make it so that our services can can still do a, a get the most out of what we've got and provide services that um, that not everyone just has accessible to them. It's going to be interesting to see how that all plays out too. But computational photography is only starting and we are, and we are headed in a major way there. We've had, we've had similar technologies in the past. I'm sure the programmers behind the Twix store uh, tool are peeing a little bit out of nervousness <laughs> um, because they would charge a pretty high price for the ability to uh, slow down footage and interpolate frames. And this, it's not a new thing, but right. uh, this new technology seems to be uh, taking advantage of all the latest technology and algorithms and doing so in a way that is freely and publicly available, which I absolutely love. Um, I was actually thinking I, I've done some uh, work uh, on some documentaries where I've shot snowflakes focus stacking mm -hmm. and uh, I might have 40 frames in that stack, but um, you might want to pull across that slowly as if you're doing a focus pull across the surface of a snowflake. Um, and if I only have 40 frames, that's less than two seconds at 24 frames per second. So um, that's way too fast and mm -hmm. really jerky. What if I could slow that down to be 10 seconds, which I mean, maybe that's too long, but uh, at least to have that wiggle room to say, okay, well, I can interpolate the frames, I can slow things down, and there's no artifacts in the process. Um, I the demos that I saw that worked the best were where there were stark differences uh, in movement, not in focus. And so that it might be a, a different beast if I were to actually put this into play. I should give it a test. Um, but uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, the technology that we have at our disposal as photographers and videographers is getting better. I'm still reminded, however, um, that I like a bit of the jerkiness in stop <laughs> right. motion animation, right? I mean, it kind of makes it feel like it's design um, because otherwise, why didn't you just computer generate the whole thing, right. you know? And um, the, the fact that you can see a little bit of it, like my, my daughter, uh, you know, when I was young, I don't know what movie I've been watched constantly, like Casper the Friendly Ghost. I don't know how many times, and it wasn't very good, uh, but we had it on VHS and, and I, I wore that tape out. For me, my daughter right now, it's uh, Coraline, um, which is based on the Neil Gaiman uh, novel. And uh, it is stop motion uh, animation with dolls that have so many different movements. And uh, they've had like 450 different people working on the sets. And, and it was a masterpiece of a movie. If you want to see a, a great movie, albeit you know designed for, for children, uh, but the production quality, knowing that it's stop motion animation, uh, made me appreciate it that much more. And I could barely tell that if they smoothed out things a little bit further, I would be less impressed with the movie. I, I don't know. Is that counterintuitive? No, no. I think that's exactly right. There, that's part of the uh, the fun of seeing those movies. And and I've seen there's the claymation stuff. There's there's things that make me just amazed as I watch it. Uh, I think it's a Chicken Run is another one where it's just incredible to me that you have a full length motion picture where someone lit was was moving clay things from frame to frame and taking pictures it just blows my mind that anyone is patient enough to actually work through all of that. And if, if it was totally smooth, like you say, you may as well just computer generate the whole thing and make it look like it was clay objects that are moving around because that's completely possible as well. Uh, but but the, the production, I guess the effort that it takes to get there is something I can really appreciate as I'm watching something like that. And as an aside, um, 
uh, I haven't seen it in 3D, but they, they filmed Coraline in 3D, uh, which means that for every frame that they captured, they shifted the camera slightly horizontally to capture another frame for stereoscopic depth. So not only did they do the whole movie once, they did the whole movie twice, <laughs> right. right? Just for the stereo effect. So, and, and how many people would actually see it that way? At least once it leaves the box office, almost nobody. Uh, and so kudos to those people doing stop motion work. You have my admiration. I don't know if I could do it to oh, that level. But now you've got a new <laughs> tool to embrace it or not. Either way, um, that's technology at our doorstep. Now, Jeff, before we get into our final story, uh, where can people find you online and hear your voice on other podcasts? So I have two other podcasts that I, I am on frequently. Uh, one is just me, and that's Photo Taco Podcast. Talk about, I break down like a lot of technical, technical stuff uh, related to, to shooting and cameras and post-processing and try to make it understandable for my, as my wife says it, what are, how are normal people supposed to learn about this and, and use this? So that's my goal is to make it that normal people, not like me are, uh, are able to understand it. And then, uh, I do a weekly show. So the photo taco is a monthly show. And then I have a whole ton of articles over at phototacopodcast.com that are helps and guides to these technical topics. Um, and then, uh, uh, master photography is the other show that I do uh, weekly and we share tips and tricks and things that are coming up in uh, a very active Facebook group with 10,000 plus people and photographers just, you know, firing questions away. And, and we get to a lot of kind of their what's on their mind and, and uh, offering suggestions and solutions to their problems. So you can go check those out there. And then my portfolio work is over at jsharmanphotos.com. And the links to all of that will be in the show notes at photogeekweekly.com. Um, so thank you for that, Jeff. And me, um, I, I just want to make one little plug here before we get into the next story, is that I'm not doing a whole lot of workshops right now. I'm doing a couple of camera club things uh, here and there, uh, which are just for those smaller groups. But I do have uh, a workshop coming up uh, with, uh, actually a couple of them, with Princeton Photo Workshop. And uh, these guys are great. I've been working with them for about five years now. And uh, I've got a, uh, a four-week sort of seminar uh, class where I'm going to ask people to, to, to shoot and take some photos in between. We're going to talk about that and everything. Um, about, uh, it's called vi um, uh, Vision Beyond Seeing. And it's basically bridging the gap between how the camera sees the world and how we see the world and how understanding those differences make us better photographers, embracing the technology, seeing things that we can't, altering reality, and just being creative and pushing beyond the uh, the boundaries that society kind of sets for ourselves as artists, you know, breaking apart that box and thinking outside of it um, in a really fun way. So uh, you can check that out at PrincetonPhotoWorkshop.com. As well as I've got a, an, I'm doing these all remotely, um, a water droplet refraction workshop and an ultraviolet uh, photography workshop. For both of those, we're going to be shipping out people kits that include like stands and flashlights and everything that you need in order to, I don't think we'll be sending you flowers for the water <laughs> workshop, but uh, you can get those yourself. Um, you know, pick them up in your backyard or anywhere. And uh, or even the craft store, you can get some fake ones, but we'll give, be giving out kits, uh, in order to accomplish this, uh, so that we could do something like that remotely. And those kits are yours to keep. Uh, so that's my, my little plug beyond the podcast for this episode as well. I'm still plugging away very hard on, uh, on my upcoming macro photography book. Uh, there was a new update, uh, update this week on Kickstarter that, uh, gave people that had backed for a digital copy, uh, access to well, probably about 90% of what the book is right now uh, in its uh, current working form. I'm actively working on the post-processing section right now um, and uh, building up some images, some new examples, redoing uh, you know the snowflake, a water droplet image, just some basic editing without focus stacking and kind of going through and building up um, a goals-based approach, not necessarily a tools-based approach, because you could do it so many different ways, but if you don't know what to do, you don't even know where to start. And so just kind of working through the flow on that right now for those that have requested further updates. There's a little bit for you. Now, Jeff, into the final story. Uh, you want to take the lead on this one? Sure. Yeah. So th this is a so interesting. Uh, you you find some really interesting. I didn't. I missed this story, so I'm really glad I got to come on and and uh, and see this story because I find it so fascinating. So this is a story about a, a the article. This is over a Petapixel. They call this person a tinkerer, and 
we talked at the top of the show about how, like, I wish I had three lifetimes to live because there's so many things I'd like to explore, so many places I'd like to go with uh, with learning and ex- and expanding myself. And I'd love to spend one of those lifetimes as a tinkerer like this and, and put stuff together. So what, what they've done is they've built themselves a little electronic module that they can kind of stick inside of an existing, like an old film camera and hook it up so that it, it's, it operates like you operate the film camera just like you always did. You, you uh, get the shutter release ready to primed push the shutter button so that the release goes, it takes a picture. And then one of the things that's different, because this has kind of been done before was it immediately transfers the image that it took, uh, the digital image it took through the film camera uh, to your phone, to a phone app. Amazing. No modifications to the camera. Yeah. Uh, Let's just make sure that we facilitate that. You don't have to take off the back or replace anything. Uh, it fits into the film holder. The the uh, thing that locks the film holder down, um, that little you know, the I don't know what you call it. Maybe there's an official word for it. That goes up and down. That's like a rod. Central, <laughs> yeah, the central rod yeah. goes into the cent- uh, center of the uh, film canister. Um, that hits an on-off switch. That's how it gets turned on and off. So that, I think that's just fantastic. It is. Um, and uh, it's a tiny sensor. That's my only gripe about this. You've got a tiny sensor that doesn't use the full image circle of a 35 millimeter camera. Now, those tiny sensors are cheap. Uh, right. They're inexpensive, readily available. I'm sure it would be very costly to buy and engineer this around a 35 millimeter uh, sensor. However, if you could do that and you could like find a way to like have a, a variable size or complexity extra battery that kind of goes into the film uptake side on the right side where the film would normally spool into just to give you extra battery life because i'm sure that would be a concern about something like this Uh, and have that as something that i could throw into like even an unusual camera like um uh i don't want to say unusual but like a a leica 3 that i have it doesn't have a back load it has a bottom load and so you know if you could make it compatible to all those different types of cameras um then i'd be sold because i I love the tactile feel of these vintage cameras. I love it. Uh, I love having nothing automatic, every dial and button. The, the, the camera doesn't have a battery. You know, there's nothing in it but the gears and the mechanisms. Um, I just don't like dealing with film, you know, right. and that's, uh, <laughs> to me, that, that I, I have film. I have lots of film. I, I plan to shoot a bunch of slide film in the next little while. That next little while might be the next decade. I don't know how long it's going to take me to get to that. So uh, to, to have some use of these old cameras in a fun and novel way, I think is just great. Um, the guy that uh, Japanese tinkerer uh, goes by the name Sanasol um, has built this into a Nikon FM. Although by the looks of it, I'm pretty sure it would be compatible with a lot of oh, other yeah. cameras as well. You might have to adjust some distances and uh, and there might be some variables within that. I don't know for sure how uh, it actually knows that a picture is being taken. Uh, maybe it's on all the time and then just detects a window where light was coming in and then blackness on either side and it just stops the file. And then records that uh, via Wi-Fi to the, uh, you know, whatever smartphone or tablet that you have connected to it. Um, But regardless of how it does it, it does it simply, it does it elegantly. And I've seen some very kludgy types of apparatus that you can, the I'm Back 35 was a a great one that had its own entire computer with a mirror and it had its own sensor that read uh, an image off of a focusing screen exactly where the film would have been. And, you know, hey, that works. Uh, We've talked about that before on the show, but this just seems much simpler doesn't have the full uh, full field of view, but I don't know. I love it, and, it, and I, I and encourage it, people to check it out. It looked to me like uh, the the way that he was able to put all these pieces together because he, he just he bought some of the stuff, the, the Wi Fi that ne- it needed, and he the sensor. But to put it together, it looks like maybe like a three D printed sort of I don't know if you call it a case, but something to to kind of mount all these components on. 3D printing, I don't know if that's true. It didn't, the article didn't say if that's there, just guessing that that's what's, what's going on. But even if it wasn't, it's, it's things like that that are making tinkering even more interesting. Because uh, you, you can create things that you couldn't in the past for, for very inexpensive uh, kind of investments and, and do amazing, amazing things to make these things work. 
Yeah, and uh, one of the images shows that there's something called an M5 stack uh, is is the main board in there, right. uh, and uh, so I, I'm just trying to pull that up right now. It, it looks like it's it's a modular toolkit to build little electronic things, um, like sort of like a Raspberry Pi would be, but smaller, right. and it's just like a development board of sorts. So um, yeah, and if that's powerful enough to run a camera, yeah, I, I don't need crazy frames per second for something like that. I you know. <laughs> I, I would use it as if I'm shooting 30, uh, a 35 millimeter film, like 36 frames. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I'd be shooting one frame a second, if not one frame an hour, uh, right. <laughs> depending on how I want to approach it. So yeah, check that out. Um, I'd encourage anybody that's interested in this to possibly reach out to the guy. I don't speak Japanese. Maybe a listener here does uh, and wants to uh, encourage some furtherance of this project because I, I honestly think it would be worthwhile. Now let's get into our picks of the week. Um, I've got one that's, uh, you know, interesting. I, I have reservations on it. And whenever a new high-powered <laughs> macro lens from a third-party company comes out, my, uh, my eyebrows lift up and I'm very wide awake at the idea of what this thing can do. And so I saw this um, uh, Yasuhara Nahona macro lens. It's a five-to-one macro lens for micro four-thirds. Um, and uh, so I, I bit the bullet and bought it because, you know, I haven't seen any macro lens specifically designed for micro four-thirds at those magnifications because that's, it goes from four-to-one to, to five-to-one which is the equivalent of 8x to 10x on a full frame camera sensor if you compare the exact amount of uh, detail that you're capturing in the frame, which is, that, that's a lot. I mean, that, that's a huge amount of information uh, on a very, very small scale. So uh, how does it stack up? Well, I got it today. And so I kind of made this my pick of the week, but I wasn't sure exactly if I was actually going to like it. And so I did some tests. Uh, in my book, I was uh, photographing a, a butterfly wing of a Madagascar sunset butterfly. Uh, and uh, so I still have that butterfly wing. And I figured I'd just test this lens with that. It's not going to end up in the book. I'm not doing scope creep and adding more <laughs> and more and more. Uh, but I just, I had the, the proper comparison. And I can see a lot of the little tiny lines on the scales of the butterfly wing, um, which is probably the f exceptional resolving power. I haven't put it through many other tests than that. Except there's a few problems. Number one, working distance is non-existent. Um, the working distance is just under two centimeters. Oh, my. Um, at five to one. Um and so that means that it has it has LEDs built into uh, into the front of it, and they're actually inset into a little outer shell so that they are pretty well flush with the lens. Um, and then you've got this plastic shell that kind of comes out in front of that. And at first I was thinking, well, that's kind of a weird design. Why would you do that? It's because the working distance is so shallow. If you don't set them exactly there, if you set them any amount forward, um, then the light wouldn't hit the subject properly. Right. Um, and it's, they're not high quality LEDs. They have a blue tint to it. And I haven't done like a CRI, uh, you know, color rendering index test on them or anything, but I don't suspect them to be great. Um, but it's kind of a necessity for this because it'd be really hard to side light in from a distance on this particular lens. Um, and I, I don't know why you even bother going from like 4X to 5X, just stick it somewhere. I can crop if I need to a little bit, but design it around something a little bit more solid as a result. And um, when I tried to go to 4X, the working distance actually got shallower, so shallow that it was almost impossible to take anything in focus because I would smush my subject up against the front of the, the little plastic piece that's holding the LEDs, which does not look like it's removable. Oh, oh, oh it's removable, but I'd void a warranty in doing it. Um, <laughs> But uh, it's one of those things where if I were to take that off and, and take away the LED component, that working distance is so unusable for anything that I don't even know why you would bother uh, engineering. I kind of, I got butterfly scales all over the thing because oh, wow. I had to literally smush it into the butterfly specimen that I had, um, which I do not recommend doing. So it's not <laughs> useful at four. Uh, four to one, unless I were to take that off. And yeah, there's three screws. Actually, I don't think I'd void the warranty taking that off. It doesn't seem like it's that difficult. Um, but if I were to take that off, I'd still have the hardest time lighting it unless I'm using transmitted light from behind the subject. In either case, though, 
the optics, they seemed good. Um, and the lens costs $399 US. So I mean, it's not cheap. But nope. at that level of magnification on a micro four-third sensor, it's kind of the only game in town that provides this kind of detail. Um, uh, yeah, there's the Liowa 25 millimeter 2.5 to 5x, which I think might have a micro four-thirds mount, uh, etc. Um, so maybe it isn't the only game in town now that I think about it. But uh, it's still good. And 399, if you intend on doing a lot of studio work with static subjects or using light coming from in behind, there is a new macro lens on the block. I would, however, recommend not using it at anything beyond its f11 um, because you want to have the widest apertures possible, especially on smaller sensors to avoid diffraction. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, that's, it's interesting. I'd love to try more of that out. <laughs> it would be so fun. That's it was, what, that's it was actually one of those lenses where, because it's such a narrow use case that I'm recommending it for. It's not a use case that I'll ever really have for right. it that I can't use a microscope objective to to overcome. Um, and those those setups are technically cheaper, but they're less turnkey. Um, excuse me. So um, this was one of the lenses where while I'm recommending it with reservations, I'm also still tempted to send it back. Uh, because while I can test it and I can say that I've gotten some knowledge of how it works, I don't know if I'm ever going to use it in the kind of stuff that I take pictures of and thereby how useful is it going to be. So I don't know. I'm still on the fence about it, but there's that knowledge out there for you to consider. <laughs> Very good. What do you got for me? Uh, all right. So I have a, uh, I've, I've gone through a bunch of these now trying to find one that I liked. So I've spent a lot of money on these now. I've sent back the ones I didn't like. There's some that flat out just don't work. And then what I'm talking about is a USB-C hub. Uh, you might, some might call it like a docking station sort of thing. Um, with Macs and some other computers, there's a lot of Windows Mac, uh, laptops now that also only have USB-C ports. Uh, you, you really need something when you're at home to expand on those ports and, uh, and I love this one. So this one I've had for a couple of months now, it has worked flawlessly and, uh, it has, it's an eight in one USB-C port or hub from anchor it costs about $55, which might seem like it's a little steep, but I've tried some that are not as expensive and they are not worth it. And this has an ethernet port. It has another USB-C port that has full, uh, USB-C capabilities. It has a USB-C charging port that's not used for data, but you can plug your charger in. It has an HDMI 2.0 port and it has SD and uh, mini SD card slots. So all of that built into this device or micro, sorry, micro SD card slots. And, uh, and it, it works really well, both Mac and Windows. And uh, I, I, can, I can highly recommend it. I'm trying to look it up right now. Uh, Anchor has a a, a um, sorry, uh, a n k e r yes. has a ton of different uh, ports available. Some of them with card readers, some of them without. Um, you know, I encourage you to like check out their whole lineup of stuff. Oh, yeah. If you recommend one, you might find another that uh, oh, one even has an Ethernet port on on the other side of it, which might be useful if you're just plugging in at home and everything else just kind of flows through. Uh, what was the one that you had again? This is the Power Expand Eight in One. Power Expand 8-in-1. I see an 8-in-2 here. I've, I'll do a search for it. I'll find the link, and we'll put that in the show notes at, uh, at photogeekweekly.com because um, I might actually be looking for when I bought something. Uh, I even forget the name. I don't even think it was a brand that I recognized before when I was setting up my uh, Surface Book 3 to take in all the peripherals that used to connect to my desktop. <laughs> right. It's my main computer, and it's handling itself pretty well. Um, occasionally, my keyboard just disconnects. Uh -huh. and reconnects a second later but if i'm in the middle of typing you know <laughs> that's annoying uh, yes when, when, when it disconnects whatever character was actively being hit gets repeated like 20 times um and so yeah it's 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 annoying and if i plug that directly into uh the surface dock or the surface itself i don't have that problem it's uh -huh. just that hub and i don't know why um and so I, I made the poor choice. You apparently made the right choice. I decided to live with my failure. Well, you did not. And uh, <laughs> so I commend you on that. Uh, and I'm curious to now walk down the path of success that you have laid in front of me. Yes. The, the problem I had with one of them was as soon as I plugged it in, the Wi-Fi on the MacBook Pro would stop working. 
oh, well, that, that's not good. No, it's not good at all. So um, I even, you know, got with a company and I was like, hey, this is what's happening. They're like, oh, we'll send you another one. And they did. And it was exactly the same problem. So and really? that was that was one that's, to avoid. Uh, that That is unfortunate. Uh, how many, just out of curiosity, did you test before you uh, you found it? I have gone through four of these now trying to to get happy with one. Oh, wow. Um, so I, I did find it here. Uh, the cost on, oh, it's just currently unavailable. Damn it. Let's try Amazon.com. You better not make me hunt around on eBay <laughs> for one of these things. $59.99 on Amazon.com. There you go. Uh, so that, that seems like uh, money well spent if you're in the need. Yep. I love it. Perfect. Well, Jeff, thank you for being on another episode of Photo Geek Weekly. I try to do these things weekly, although I'm going to tell you right now, I can't promise you that I'll do one next week. I am just going to put blinders on and work on my books. So um, if, if you don't hear from me next week, please don't be sad. I'll be back the week after and there'll be much to talk about with uh, whoever I can wrangle into sitting down with me for an hour and a bit to talk uh, talk shop about tech and photography and geekery and all of this. Thank you for sitting through it. Uh, the audience for this show is great. And thank you for all the commentary that we continually get on it. Um, with all that said, with all the rambling done, uh, it is time to stay in and shoot. Uh-oh.